just in case you don't know, I'm Al Garrett. I've been a member here for well over 10 years. I'm uh, grateful to have the opportunity to share with you. Uh, this is the third time I've attempted this. You'd think you would grow tired of it. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wanted to say before I get started, just the, the effort to prepare uh, for a Sunday each time just makes me more and more grateful for Randy and his family, uh, how they minister to us, uh, how he pours himself into what he serves us and the Lord on Sunday and still doesn't neglect his family or his own investigation of the Lord or the ministry that he does for us or the building that we're trying to build in the name of the Lord next door. And I'm just grateful for you. But we're here to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and so we're going to jump into the topic of biblical marriage uh, and there's a, a verse up there. We've been in Proverbs uh, for a little while, and as I was thinking about what I wanted to present to you guys about marriage, uh, to challenge us, it's a challenge, it's a challenge to me. This verse came up, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18, 22. That word favor catches my attention as I read it. And I believe that favor is not just on he, it's not just on the husband. It's on the husband and wife together. And there's a magnitude to that word that I think sometimes we just kind of miss. We, we believe marriage is a good thing, and, and, and we enjoy it when we're in marriage, unless you're in the middle of a fight. But uh, he, he calls it favor to have marriage, and, and I think that's an important point for us to grab hold of. And how I want to go about this is we're going to take a little journey uh, through scripture, through some observations about the world around us, uh, and we're going to see it where it lands. So uh, about a month ago, I uh, ran across a quote from a lady named Joy Behar. Anybody recognize that name? <laughs> uh, I'm not a viewer of The View, but the quote caught my attention, and, and it left me thinking. So I wanted to see if it would do the same for you. He's married, and I'll tell you that this is a reference to Pete Buttigieg. You know who he is, the politician, homosexual, was running for the president. So this is not a political message. He's out of the race, uh, so don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, he's married, and unless you're a homophobe, he's married in a very traditional marriage, totally monogamous. Now, it, does any of that catch you? For, for some, the word homophobe will catch you. But, and I, I can understand, but don't get caught there. That's not what we want to talk about. What we want to talk about is the traditional part. It strikes me as odd that she would call that traditional. I, I know people that call it progress. Progress, because they feel like they've made progress. Progress requires movement. Move, movement I can understand. Tr traditions are things that just kind of stand still. They have inertia, uh, and they require some force to act on them, to move them from where they are. So force comes along the tradition of marriage, and it moves marriage, changes the definition. That part I can see. And then to call it progress, I kind of struggle with. Let me show you something. Look at this. Uh, 
hit that first. <laughs> when you talk about progress, you have to have a goal. Progress requires a goal to move forwards. So what's, as we talk about progress in marriage, what's the goal? That's the question we should rest on. What's the goal? Now, what I want to show you is, is a survey. Can you make that out? It's a little faint. The dark blue line is the one you're interested in. This is a survey done by Pew Research, done over a period from 2001 to 2019, and it's a survey of the approval rating of same-sex marriage within America. You can see on the left, in 2001, it was about 35%. Over the course of two decades, that changes to 61%. That's a big change. That's a big change. And then the question we're left with is, is that progress? To answer that, you have to ask, what's the goal? What's the goal of the change in marriage? And the first answer you'll get is that the goal is inclusion. Inclusion. And you can listen to people like Matthew Vines. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a young man who declares himself to be a Christian homosexual. And he writes articles on it, and he believes it's a biblical position. And he uses things like Genesis chapter 2, where God declares that it was bad for man to be alone. And so God created companionship. And then he uses other topics like he is created as a homosexual. And therefore, it would be wrong of any person to try and prevent him from having the companionship that God made and declared good. That's the kind of answer you'll get. Inclusion is the goal. We would struggle with that. But let's ask the bigger picture question. Is everybody supposed to be married? Should everyone be married? Now, because I put that within the confines of a homosexual relationship, your, your immediate answer is probably no. But take it out of that context and put it within the context of your kids or your grandkids. Should they all be married? Well, that's the American dream, isn't it? That's what we tell them for generations and generations. You should go to school, get a career, find a mate, get married, buy a house, have kids, raise a family. This is the American dream. Is that scriptural? So here's the first challenge. Jump to Matthew chapter 19. You've got Jesus confronted by the Pharisees. That's not abnormal. This happened all the time. Jesus confronted by the Pharisees. Their first question to him was, Hey, Jesus, can, uh, can you divorce your wife for anything? And literally, they meant anything. <laughs> right? That was the point. His answer to them was Genesis chapter 2. You know that they were created male and female, brought together and let uh, no man tear asunder. This is fundamentally the answer. Their rebuttal, right, because they don't give up, their rebuttal was, hey, but Moses gave us divorce, so how could it be wrong? This is his response. Moses gave us divorce. He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples, these are his guys, said to him, well, if that's the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus 
said, but he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. So I want you to catch two things while you're looking at that scripture, Jesus talking. The, the first one, divorce was not part of design. Do you see that? It came along with Moses. Divorce was not part of design. That's an important point. You grab that one, put it in your pocket, save it for later. Number two, the disciples were so committed to the concept of divorce at this time, they're stunned that Jesus says, uh, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. Do you see that in the scripture? They're stunned. Well, if that's the case, Jesus, then we shouldn't get married at all. You would think Jesus would turn around and say, oh, no, I was just joking, or no, you're taking that too hard, or no, this is, just, just relax and listen to what I'm trying to say. But he says, you're right. But that's not for everybody. It's for those to whom it's given. So there's another big point I want you to catch between Proverbs 18 and this passage, Matthew 19. It's two things. Both singleness and marriage are gifts. Do you hear that? Both singleness and marriage are gifts. Both come from the Father, and you, we receive them as He deems appropriate. Now that may be a hard message for some, but... That's Matthew 19. Paul reinforces it in 1 Corinthians 7. And so the, the point of this is, this big argument about inclusion, everybody should have an opportunity for marriage, Jesus says that's not true. So we can't use that argument to say why marriage should change in one direction or the other. He says, by design you don't have divorce, and by design some people will be single and some people will be married. That's important to hold on to. Go to the next slide. But then I'm left with another question. So, why, why are these people asking for the opportunity to marry? And, and this is not just directed at homosexuality. I want you to know that. Remember, we referred to the American dream. So, why do people go to marriage given the fact that we're not very good at it? I mean, would you agree with that? The answer for marriage is pretty much a mixed bag. And it's not my intent to, to affront anybody. For right now, we're just making observations about how the world works and what Scripture says. So if you have this history in your life and God's moved through your life and has healed you from it, then, then you rejoice in that and know that I'm not trying to attack you. I'm just trying to make observations about how the world works. And here's the observation. 41% of marriages are affected by adultery. 41%. That's a big number. 40 to 50% of marriages will end in divorce. This was a, a study done by PolitiFact in 2012. Over half of marriages suffer betrayal. Half of marriages suffer pain, anguish, a loss of trust, People that will spend the rest of their lives trying to figure out whether they can trust somebody again or not. Kids that are separated from parents. Kids that have hurts inside of them that they're going to have to figure out how to deal with over, the life, over their lifetime and then run the risk of issuing those same issues to their children. So if marriage has such baggage with it, why is the homosexual community running to it. I mean, let's be honest. They, they, they basically have social approval. They, they have relationships. 
and they have the intimacy they desire. What does marriage add to that? Or think about the younger generation. In response to this, the tendency in the younger generation is to push marriage aside. The American dream's been flip-flopped on them. They said, hey, the American dream now is to make a career, find a mate, move in together, buy a house, have kids, raise a family, and then after we're done with all that, we'll get married. Why? You already have the whole kit and caboodle. What is marriage adding to this conversation in either one of those? I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is. You go to the next slide. Given all these issues, what's so compelling about marriage? What's so attractive about it? What, what brings people to it, in, even when they've been committed not to pursue it? C.S. Lewis had a way of talking about things like this. He talks about truths and how we practice them. His, his examples through mathematics. How, how many of you guys have a friend, a friend, who's not very good at math? <laughs> Anybody? Okay, if you don't, it's probably you. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis would say, just because your friend struggles with the multiplication table doesn't change the fact of arithmetic. And so some things are true regardless how pitifully we practice them. And this is how I want you to think about marriage, because this is the point I came to. So there's something about marriage, if you peel back the fabric and look inside, there's something very attractive about it, something very true. If you go to the next slide... Marriage is a picture painted by an all-wise God to communicate a truth to us that we desperately need. A picture painted by an all-wise God to communicate a truth to us we desperately need. You won't find that in your handouts if you're looking for it. I skimped so I could change slides. <laughs> God's used pictures throughout human history to communicate truths to us. You recognize that? parables in the New Testament, stories in the Old Testament. And he does that because it brings out something to us. It causes us to dig into the words and try and figure out what they mean. And as a result, you own it a little more than you would otherwise. So take Matthew 13, 44. Maybe you can read this. It says, a picture of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, uh, Jesus could have said, hey, the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing you'll ever discover. That would portray the truth, but he chooses not to do that. He chooses to use a picture because it forces the people that are listening to dig in and try and understand what that means. And maybe if they've bought a field before, they realize the magnitude of the exchange. Does that make sense? But he doesn't just do it in the Old Testament. I mean, in the New Testament with word pictures, he does it in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, God created a picture of the plan of salvation, and he buried it right in the commands that he gave Israel. He said, you have commandments to perform feasts. Those feasts are important, and you'll have to do it every year. The Passover, well, the Passover represents the death of Jesus Christ. It's the sacrifice for sin. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, that represents the burial of Jesus Christ. The Feast of First Fruits, that represents His resurrection. And the Feast of Pentecost, that represents the integration of the church into the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he used the Old Testament to create a picture that he wanted the people to understand, the plan of salvation. And then he went beyond that. He didn't just tell them, here's a picture for you to figure out. He made them practice it. They had to perform this over and over again. And this is what God's doing with marriage. In the same way, he's creating a picture that we are required to practice in order to reveal something to us. Now, this picture was created for us in one sense to make us happy, right? He talks about companionship in the Old Testament. That's the purpose of the creation. But it's a bigger picture than that, and it has much more meaning. It's not just a Hallmark Channel story. It's not just about love between two people. It's a picture of God. If you go to the next slide, Jesus is trying to confront people with the idea of marriage. The Sadducees come to him in Matthew 22, verses 29 through 30. They're asking him questions about what happens in the resurrection. All right, And those questions are, hey, this lady over here, uh, she got married, the husband died, he had seven brothers, she married all of them. They all died. When she gets to heaven, this is going to be all messed up. <laughs> what, are we gonna, what, is, what are you going to do? Whose husband is she going to be? And you can just imagine that they feel like, hey, I know scriptures, I've got this guy cornered. And his response to them, I think it's a response many of us would receive. You're wrong. Because you don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What's he, what's he just told them? These are facts to grab hold of in Scripture, right? We talked about the fact that uh, divorce wasn't part of design and the fact that not everybody's supposed to be married, some are supposed to be single. It's another set of facts. Go to the next slide. We, number one, we tend to misunderstand what marriage is. Are you comfortable with that? I mean, so far, God's hit me with a few things. I'm like, wow, I didn't think of it that way. And number two, he said, uh, marriage is an earthly gift not a heavenly one. Marriage is for earth and not for heaven. Why? Well, let's drop back to Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. This is a place where uh, Paul is giving us the story of duties of husbands and wives. Are you guys familiar with that? Wives submit to husbands, husbands sacrifice for wives. You got that story? Right at the bottom of the story, right at the bottom of the instruction, he, he writes out three verses... Well, they weren't verses at the time, but they are now. <laughs> he writes out three statements. And the second one is like he just picks his head up and has an epiphany and says, Oh, my goodness. So read it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis chapter 2. Then he picks his head up. This mystery is profound. 
And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And then he puts his head back down and starts writing again. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you see what he did there? In, in the middle of writing out the requirements for what marriage looks like, he says, oh my goodness, this is not just about husband and wife, this is about Jesus Christ and the church. Now these other things are starting to make sense. He said marriage is just for earth, not for heaven. Why would it not be for heaven? Go to the next slide. Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, our God the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does he tell us? This is John talking about prophecy. What's his point? He's telling us about something that happens in the future, in heaven, between a bridegroom and a bride. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. That's right. It's the Sunday school answer. <laughs> it's Jesus. And he tells us that. If you go to John chapter 3, you've got John the Baptist. People are coming to him and saying, Hey, John, you know, you used to have all these people that come to you for baptism, but now they seem to be going to Jesus. Are you okay with that? And John's answer is, Hey, the friends of the bridegroom are all happy as long as the bridegroom has his bride. Do you see what he said? Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. Go to Matthew chapter 9. This is people coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, um, all the guys with John, they fast. And the Pharisees fast. But I notice that none of your disciples fast. Why don't, why don't your disciples fast? Jesus' answer to them, You don't fast when the bridegroom is with you. You fast once the bridegroom has left. So do you see what God's set up here in, in the story between Ephesians and Revelation? It's that marriage is a picture of a union that happens in heaven. If you go to the next slide. Marriage is two wholly different beings. God and His church. Coming together in intimacy. That's the Holy Spirit. Dedicated exclusively, there's no other God, and intended permanently, forever, throughout eternity. That's the portrait God has created. It's a heavenly union. It's a ceremony in Revelation 19. It's an event that happens where Jesus Christ declares, this is my bride, and he presents her glorious. And just those two passages are enough for me to believe this is true. But I'm even more convinced when I see how staunchly Scripture speaks against things like adultery, homosexuality, sexual immorality. I mean, think about it. If intimacy is only about creating kids then why does God care if it happens within a union? Or if a union is the most important thing of what God created, why does He care if it's a man or a woman? 
But he does. Because it represents what he's done in heaven. If you think about it, it's kind of like, uh, like the projector. There's a source of light behind this screen. And it projects light onto the screen. And then the fabric of the screen results in a display of an image. The union of the Lamb and the church is the source of light in heaven. And it projects down onto the fabric of earth, and the image that we see as a result is biblical marriage. And now, if you take your paintbrush and go walk up to the image and start drawing on it, we call that vandalism. And vandalism is an act is an, to vandalize the picture is to act against the artist. Does that make sense? So now if we take this concept and we apply it to what God's done as far as the union that happens in heaven and its representation on earth, then no wonder God gets upset when we do something that portrays the image of something that it's not. I mean, you think about what God says about adultery in Scripture. If you go to the next slide. God identifies adultery in Scripture to be identical to idolatry. Look at the verses like Hosea, the whole book. <laughs> Jeremiah 3, Isaiah 1, Ezekiel 6, 9, James 4, 4 through 5. Everywhere it's addressed in those, in those passages, God declares adultery. Israel adulterous because they have other gods. And James declares us adult, adulterous because we worship other things. God identifies the two. Speak, scripture speaks so clearly against adultery because adultery takes the image of the union of Jesus Christ and the church and it takes Christ out of the picture and puts another God there. Or think about homosexuality. Why does Scripture speak so blatantly against homosexuality? And it does. Why does it do that? Because homosexuality takes the union of Jesus Christ in the church, and it takes God out of the picture and places another man there. It's man worship in heaven. Is this ringing with you guys? Are you, are you seeing this? It's, it's not just what you're doing to your marriage. It's what you're saying about Jesus Christ and his church. And then you jump down to sexual immorality. And I just want you to know that this is painted on the same page as everything else. Sexual immorality, that word in the New Testament is porneia. Porn. Anything that causes you to think of sex outside the confines of your marriage. He puts it on the same page. And he uses over 14 references in the New Testament to declare it to be wrong. Nine references in Revelation. And he says all these things are wrong because they defame what I've created. They defame what I'm telling you, the world, that I plan to do for salvation. That's a big deal. And so, what you, what you land on is that marriage on earth is supposed to be a picture of what's happening in heaven. Give the next slide. The ideal of marriage is attractive because the bridegroom pours himself out for his bride to make her holy. I mean, what woman 
doesn't want a man who declares her so worthy of his attention that he will sacrifice everything he has in order to make sure that she's protected, preserved, sanctified, and declared righteous. Who wouldn't want that? Who, who would have trouble submitting to that? Or the husband? The drive that he feels to conquer and to have victory and to, to win? We often misappropriate that to work or to sports or to other things, but that drive is intended to be for your marriage. It's intended to be the husband who sacrifices himself so that the bride can be presented glorious. That's what this marriage is supposed to look like, and then it is a representation of Jesus Christ and the church in union forever. Does that make sense? And so this puts marriage on a whole different pedestal And then, things that we talk about that students you may consider backwards or archaic or old-fashioned, they start to make sense because they're a representation of what Christ is doing for the church. Things like where Paul talks about don't be unequally yoked. You guys recognize that passage? Don't be unequally yoked. Well, all of a sudden that makes sense because if you take a man who is not a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you put him in union with a woman who is a believer in Jesus Christ, how in the world is he ever going to be able to sacrifice himself in order to sanctify her? It, he can't fulfill the picture. Or, students, the, the idea that a man should be the pursuer of his bride, that sounds backwards, doesn't it? But isn't that how Jesus Christ behaved towards the church? Luke 19.10, I come to seek and to save that which was lost. I mean, the whole gospel is predicated on the fact that we cannot pursue God. We just don't want Him. He presents to us what He's willing to do, and all of a sudden He becomes attractive. Our intimacy only within marriage... The Holy Spirit only comes upon the church. Ephesians tells us that it's the seal of our salvation. That's intimacy with God. And thus, intimacy can only be within the confines of marriage. Do these things ring true with you? And the problem is, marriage is really attractive from that perspective. If, if you could have a man that would sacrifice himself for you, I guarantee you, you would go there, or a woman that would that would surrender herself and submit, trusting you completely, you would go there. But, but we're just not very good at it. Marriage attracts us only to reveal the fact that we're pretty doggone selfish. I mean, think about it. What woman can really submit to a man? He's conceited, arrogant, selfish, self-loving. It's okay, you can laugh. <laughs> Or, or what man can sacrifice for a woman? That's unrelenting. There's always something else that needs to be done. I would personally rather go to work. Knock something off the task list and get an attaboy. Because it's immediate. But this is not what God calls us to. God declares that your greatest mission on this earth, if you are within marriage, is your marriage. 
your greatest mission. It's better than anything else you can pursue. Your job, your sports, your other relationships. Because it declares the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. The problem is we're just doggone bad at it. You, you think about it. Marriage throughout human history. We can't handle forgiving people. So we created divorce to get around it. We can't handle sticking to one mate. So we created polygamy to allow for others. We can't handle submission to a man. So we created feminism to rise above. We can't handle the confines of a fixed relationship. So we create cohabitation so we can live together and just not have the constraints of a marriage. And God forbid we can't confine our sexual urges. So we define pornography, prostitution, same-sex marriage, so that we could have more of them. Does this ring true with you? We're just looking big picture at what's going on with the world. And so this is the important part, and this is the part I'm going to leave you with. Remember that journey I talked about at the beginning? We started with Proverbs 18. Talked about when a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing, and he receives the favor of the Lord. This is the favor you've received from the Lord. You have a divine appointment if you're married to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world to demonstrate it in a way that no other relationship can demonstrate it. A husband who is willing to sacrifice everything that he has for his bride in order to declare her righteous and present her to the world. So, And a wife who is willing to engage in a relationship and trust the husband to, do what he, to, to be his, her protector, to be her provider, and to be the one that demonstrates all her gifts. And when we do that... We demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world outside. And now we have an opportunity to bring God glory through our marriage. If you go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so here's, here's what I want you to grab hold of, is biblical marriage is progressive marriage. When you hear somebody talk about progress in marriage, you have a golden opportunity to grab that conversation and declare, hey, I know exactly what progress in marriage is. It's the goal is to represent the marriage of Christ and the church. And everything that you do within that marriage is supposed to move in that direction. So this conversation is not one that you have to avoid. It's one that you have to engage in. And then you know that you can engage in it because the husband and wife move toward it with forgiveness. That's a big word. And sacrifice through the power of God. Remember when Jesus Christ confronted the Pharisees? He told them, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures nor the power of God. How many families in here have been married for 30 years or more? Don't be afraid. <laughs> 
I can, I can guarantee that you can't get there without forgiveness. You agree? And every time you've demonstrated forgiveness in your relationship, you've demonstrated the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every act. And so this is our call, but we cannot do it without Jesus Christ himself. If you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then all of this is some unrelenting quest that you cannot fulfill and you will be frustrated and angry and look for a way out. But if the Holy Spirit rests inside of you and He's convicting you of the things that you need to do, then you can know that Jesus Christ is busy in your life and it's not something that you have to surrender. And you can press forward in sacrifice and you can demonstrate not just love between a husband and a wife, but the glory of a Jesus Christ Holy Son who saves us and declares us righteous in spite of our abuses and sins. Does that make sense? This is what he calls us to in marriage. And marriage should look 100% different within the church than it does outside in the world. And if it doesn't, then maybe we have something to repent for. I know that I do. My marriage would have ended a long time ago if it weren't for the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness he allows my wife to extend to me, and the forgiveness that I extend to her. And so I'm going to say a prayer, and then I'll give you an offering of invitation. And it's just an opportunity to think about this one thing. Do I represent the gospel of Jesus Christ in my marriage? Not does your spouse. Do I? Do I offer forgiveness? Do I lift her up as holy? Do I submit even when he doesn't deserve it? Do I offer respect even when he's struggling? And if you don't, the altar's for you. Because we're the ones that need the help. And there's nothing shameful in that, because I can tell you, if you look around, the guy to your right and to your left, he needs it too. So if God's convicting you about it, let him do his work. Let him do his work. Because we will have revival at Meadowbrook Baptist Church as soon as we're comfortable repenting of our sins and giving him glory for how he heals us. Let me pray. Jesus, I can only give you praise. You are beautiful. And we are undeserving. I thank you for the testimony of how you've healed people in this room, how you've held them together for years, and how you receive glory because of it. Today, I know there are marriages in this room that are struggling. If you've pricked their heart, God, make it clear that it's your spirit calling them. Give them joy and confidence in the forgiveness they'll receive. All these things we ask in the precious name of Jesus Christ.